0: Now, a man who took a leap into the unknown back in 1947. He was a New York City bus driver named William Smillo. For a while, he became the most famous bus driver in the country, though I think what that really means is that he was the only famous bus driver in the country. He told his story on television.
1: Pepsi Cola presents Faye Emerson.
2: Hello again. Do you ever think of getting away from it all? A bus driver had that same feeling, and he made every headline in the country. So ask him to come up here and tell us all about it. Yes. Hello, Bill. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Come on, sit down and let's talk. Hey, Charlie, got a couple of Pepsis here for us? Pepsis right here. <laughs> Thanks, Charlie.
0: Yes, ma'am. Okay, so I just want to describe what's happening here. It's black and white. The set of this TV show is a living room, but like a complete living room with everything. Window blinds, paintings on the walls, there's a credenza. This was back before TV figured out that the only part of the living room that they actually need for a talk show is the couch. So, okay, a butler, yes, a butler, hands the host, Faye Emerson, a silver tray with a bottle of Pepsi and two glasses. Faye pours her guest a soda and...
2: Will you tell us what happened, please? wonderful. Wonderful. Well, it's one of those things. I was on a job for about 20 years and I really got tired of it all, you know. Up and down, every day, the same people, the same stops, nickels, dimes, transfers. and Well, this morning I thought I'd try something different. So when I come out of my garage, instead of making a right turn to go up to my route, I thought I'd make a left turn. And that was the first thought you'd really given to it, just that you did it on impulse. So I made this left turn, and I went west towards George Washington Bridge. It was a beautiful morning, sun shining. So I got on the other side of Washington Bridge. I was in Jersey then, and I stopped for breakfast.
0: After breakfast, Simola got back in his bus. And he didn't drive to the Bronx to pick up his passengers on his usual route. He headed south on U.S. Route 1. Smilla so had been a bus driver with what was then called the Surface Transportation System of New York for 17 years without any problems. Went to work every day, never complained, people said. And as he drove further and further away from New York City and from his job and from his, you know, life, he switched the destination sign from subway to special. Hours passed.
2: I kept riding. Before I knew it, I was in Washington. and I was right in front of the White House. Ever been to Washington before? Never been there. Never. So I decided to look around. Looked around for 15, 20 minutes. When I come back, there's a policeman standing by the bus. And he asked me, he says, What are you doing here with this great big bus in a restricted parking area? Right
3: in front of the White House, wasn't right it?
2: Right in front of the place. As I'm waiting for a delegation of union officials, they're up there on
0: business. And
4: Pretty fast, thank you.
0: Smilla got back in his bus. He kept driving south. He said he even picked up a hitchhiker, a sailor, who rode with him for two days. Then, on the third day, Samoa and his bus arrived in Hollywood, Florida, just north of Miami. It was late. He said he went for a swim.
2: Moonlight bathing. I enjoyed that very much. Oh, what a thrill. <laughs> it was.
0: William Smilla was 1,300 miles from the Bronx, 1,300 miles from New York traffic, from the daily grind. And he was almost out of money. He went to the Gulfstream Park racetrack. He liked to gamble. We do not know how much money he put down, but he left the track with $2.60. Same day, he also went to the closest Western Union and sent this telegram to his boss. Quote, with disabled bus number 1310, stop. In need of $50, stop. Send money to Hollywood, Florida, stop Similo.
2: So I'm waiting at the telegraph office for the money. And two the policemen come over. This says, You wanted. I said, What for? They says for stealing a bus. I says, Oh no. I said I didn't steal that bus. I said, they gave it to me. Well one way led to the other. They said, You're still
0: arrested. But today on our radio program, what happens when you take a crazy leap into the unknown? having no idea if it's going to work out or what's going to happen next. Will you end up on a beach in Florida, happy and carefree? Will you end up in handcuffs? We have three stories of people risking everything in their lives, including the surprising thing that happened next to this bus driver, William Samillo. Stay with us.
1: You did what everybody
2: always wanted to do. Just get away from everything. That's what I wanted to do. Talking about getting away from it all. Well, if you are planning to get away from it all, you may like to know that no matter where you go, you're almost sure to find friendly, sparkling Pepsi-Cola waiting for you.
0: And, of course, feel free to pop open a delicious Pepsi as you listen to this next act, Act One. By the way, we are not getting paid for that at all. Act One, Busman's Holiday. Okay, so you remember where we left off. Uh, Similo had just been arrested in Hollywood, Florida by two police officers. Joe Richman is the one who dug up this old TV interview, and he picks up the story from there.
5: After the arrest, two New York detectives and a mechanic were sent down to Florida to bring Similo back, along with his bus. The mechanic drove the bus, but Samillo told people later the mechanic couldn't really handle it. His driving made the detectives nervous, so the cops actually put Similo back behind the wheel. And then right before they arrived in New York City, they switched drivers again. They put the mechanic back at the wheel of the bus, and Similo dutifully got into his handcuffs. So here's what happened next. As the bus pulled up to the steps of the Beach Street police station in Manhattan, hundreds of people had gathered, and they were cheering. In photographs, you see Simillo being led through the crowd by the cops, and he has a huge smile. He's beaming. Over the time it took to drive back from Florida to New York, news had spread about the bus napping. William Simillo had become a folk hero.
2: William Simillo, the busman who took a holiday and brother, what a holiday. Just wanted to drive, feel the tang of spring in the air. Busmen in the Bronx greeted their passengers today with a cry, all aboard for Florida. Ah,
5: spring. And now, here's Don Elder. That was NBC. The Daily News wrote, it must have been a wonderful trip and we hope Bill's boss will try to understand. From the New York World-Telegram, we know just how he felt who hasn't yearned for escape, for change, for fairer scenes? From as far away as Michigan, the Traverse City Eagle wrote, Across the nation today, thousands of office workers and laborers went to their humdrum jobs with hearts a little lighter because of what William L. Simillo did to escape the same kind of boredom that fills their ordered lives. Cimillo was indicted on charges of grand larceny. He was facing up to 10 years in prison. Simillo's fellow New York City bus drivers who you'd think would be the least sympathetic people in the country to his whole joyride, they organized a fundraiser to pay his legal fees. Letters and telegrams of support came in from around the country. The court of public opinion was delivering its verdict, and soon the service transportation system of New York decided to drop the charges. Not only that, they gave him his job back. On his first day back on the route, a line of people waited to ride Similo's bus. One article reported that after school let out, 350 screaming high school girls tried to get onto his 44-seat bus, ignoring three other buses. They wanted his autograph. In the end, William Simillo was incredibly lucky. He took a huge leap, fled home, cut out on his job, committed a crime, and he got away with it because people loved the story. For the rest of his life, he was that guy who took a city bus to Florida. He had his uh, day in the sun. This is Richard Samillo, the bus driver's son. His dad died in 1975. He
6: felt like a star, I guess. He was recognized wherever he went. He wasn't just a, another bus driver, you know? He was somebody. I guess
5: that's what he felt. You, you say it so um, begrudgingly. <laughs> About because, him being star. because,
6: you know, every time we went out, uh, every place we went, it was always, you know, it was like a, a movie star, let me put it to you that way. You know, and after a while, I think my mother got tired of it. <laughs> and I got tired of it, of it all, you know what I'm saying? But he never got tired of it.
5: Richard and his family never found the story as charming as most New Yorkers did. Starting with the day their dad stole bus number thirteen ten. Let me explain something to you. I was twelve
6: years old at the time, and if uh, I come home from school, my mother was crying, and I was, "Well, why are you crying?" And, well, you know, he didn't come home. I wonder where he is. Well, he come home for supper and all that. And the next day, same thing didn't come home. Not a phone call. So she called the uh, garage. Didn't know where he is. The bus never come back to the garage. Just disappeared. (laughs) And we used to gather together at my grandmother's house. My mother crying. My grandmother crying. It was like a wake.
5: I mean, you're 12 years old at the time. What did you think might have happened?
6: Either the bus ran off the road someplace, maybe it went into a lake. This is as me thinking, you know. Maybe it was a big accident that nobody knew about. So I, I really thought deep down that he must have died.
5: It wasn't until his dad was arrested in Hollywood, Florida, that the family finally knew what had happened. Richard says he never sat down with his dad and really talked about why he did what he did, even as an adult. Was it true his dad just got the idea one morning to spontaneously drive to Florida, like he'd said? He didn't plan it at all? Did he really think he'd get away with it? And the biggest question.
6: I don't know if my mother ever asked, why didn't you call? I never asked. He never called. Not a word. You know, I looked up to him, you know, he's my father. But after the Florida incident, I had problems. I had problems looking at
5: that. that was a tough time. For me. Even now, the word he uses when he talks about his dad's bus trip is embarrassing. But there's someone else in the family who has a completely different take on this. Richard's younger brother... Dennis. Quick heads up, their voices are remarkably similar.
6: It's a, it's a good thing to me. To me, you know, he,
5: he's still my hero, you know. There's one simple reason the two brothers see this so differently. Dennis was just a baby when their father disappeared. He doesn't remember any of it. He doesn't remember his mother and grandmother crying. He didn't think his dad had driven into a lake, didn't picture him dead in an accident. Dennis's vision of the whole thing is closer to Easy Rider if Easy Rider took place on a municipal bus. I could just
6: see my father putting the pedal to the metal and just going, let me keep on going. In the joy of just looking out the window and driving and the way my father was, being carefree and saying, you know what, I'm just driving, I have nothing on my head, I have no pressure today, I have nothing
5: going on. Let me keep on going. Dennis has a collection of memorabilia about the bus trip. He pulls out a large manila folder. On the front, it says, Dad's event. There are dozens of old photographs and articles, and a videotape with footage from 1947. We go down to the basement to watch it.
6: This is from an old old newsreel that was taken at the time. It's really short.
5: That's the bus coming in. It's his dad arriving back in New York. And right now he's being uh, escorted into the courthouse, going in front of the judge and being arraigned right now. That's it. Now, Richard, the older brother, he had told me about this same newsreel. He had seen it the week it was actual news in a movie theater when he was 12. I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, boom, my father's
6: picture is up on a screen. And I'm looking there. I was stunned. You see your father, as a kid, handcuffed, detectives on both sides of him, bringing him into the courthouse. I don't know I, I don't know anybody that would feel uh, proud
5: of something like that. So that's the older brother, Richard. But here in the basement with Dennis, his take on this? I enjoy every minute of it. Just makes me idolize him. Wish I could do things like that sometimes. In a way, a small way, Dennis has done that. He sees himself as a free spirit. He says he got that from his dad. Doesn't worry about things too much. He likes to gamble. He started his own businesses, distributing beer and soda. he was his own boss, which meant no pension, no paid vacation, no security, no guarantees. He says it's different from the life his brother chose. And Richard, the older brother, would agree with that. The lesson Richard took from his father's story was to be a responsible person, to think about the consequences of his actions. Richard worked all his life as a fireman, which, oddly, he calls a safe job. He's retired now. But as it turned out, when I interviewed Richard, he and his wife were getting ready to drive to Florida, as he said, the legit way. Did you ever want to do something like what your dad did? You ever want? No, 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 no.
6: I, I knew I didn't want to do something as drastic as that. So that's the biggest difference between my father and me. My father never worried. Don't worry. The rent will be paid. Don't worry, we got food on the table. Don't worry. There's... I worry about everything. I worry about my kids. They had to go to school. They had to go to college. I worry about the snow. I worry... <laughs> My father never worried about nothing. My father never worried about nothing. He worried, you know, I worried. Oh. I don't sleep nights. I pause in time I still worry. <laughs> so you wish you didn't worry as much? You wish? I wish I could have lived that, uh, yeah, yeah, I wish I could not worry.
5: After Richard's dad, William Simelo got his job back in 1947. He went on to drive a bus in the Bronx for the next 16 years, with no detours. Once a reporter asked him, did he still think about hitting the open road, turning left and heading across the bridge again? Smello said, yes, he thought about it. But when you tell somebody a joke, he said, it's never as funny the second time.
0: Joe Richman. Sarah Kate Kramer produced that story with them. It's part of the podcast series Radio Diaries, which you can find and subscribe to at radiodiaries.org. Act two. Where we are going? We don't need roads. So now a story about people wanting to take a different kind of leap, a kind of quantum leap, you could say. There's this uh, study done by the Pew Research Center and Smithsonian Magazine a few years back. Today's show is a rerun. The study was about future technologies. And basically they called up 1,001 Americans. I do not understand why it's 1,001 and not just 1,000. Maybe 1,001 just seemed sexier or something. Anyway, they called up a thousand one people. They asked them what new technological advances they expected to see in the future and what technological advances they wanted to see. So there were questions like, would you eat meat that was grown in a lab? Would you get a brain implant to improve your mental capacity? Answers yes and yes to those, of course. And if you read through the whole thing, there's this kind of bizarre finding at the end, something small, something that caught the interest of producers Sean Cole and Jonathan Goldstein.
1: So the very last question in this survey about future technologies, question 14, it was a short survey, was this. If there was one futuristic invention that you could own, what would it be? There was no multiple choice. This was an open-ended question. And off the tops of their heads, 9% of respondents, so roughly 1 out of 10 people, said they wanted some way to travel through
7: time. One out of 10 came up with that on their own. That'd be roughly 30 million Americans. That's like the entire nation of Canada sitting around wishing for a time machine, which, speaking as a Canadian, I can say we secretly do. First stop, moments before making our national mascot a beaver and not an American woodcock. The desire for time travel at 9% ranked highest on the list, tied only with cures for diseases. People wanted time travel more than they wanted robot servants which was 4%, more than they wanted world peace, a whopping 2%. Time travel was three times more popular than hovercars, holodecks, and jetpacks, combined.
1: But the Pew study is just a study. It's just numbers. It doesn't explain why so many people want to travel in time. Is it our curiosity about the future? I
7: wonder what new kinds of cutlets the world of tomorrow will hold. Regrets over the past? Boy, do I wish I hadn't eaten all those cutlets! And so we struck out into the
1: world to try to answer that question: Why do you want to time travel?
8: This is something I think about a lot.
2: Uh, Well, I've done a lot of thinking about this. Oh, there's a lot of things I'd like to accomplish.
7: And even though they've been mulling this over for so long, many still reach for the most well-trodden sci-fi comic book staple.
5: My first impulse about time travel is the same one that I would guess that everybody has. You know, it's like I'm going to go back and you know. I'm going to kill Hitler.
1: What's funny is that they know it's kind of lame. You can hear it in their voices. Or kill Hitler when he's a baby, or kill his mother or something. They preface it with phrases like...
3: The thing everyone always says is...
1: And then they say it anyway.
3: If there
8: hadn't been a Hitler...
1: Put a bullet in Adolf Hitler's head when he was still a student, I guess. We spoke to about 50 people, both friends and strangers
7: we walked up to on the street. Most of them had more thoughts about traveling to the past rather than the future... After all, you never know with the future. Teleport yourself hundreds of years from now, and you can land on an earth devoid of people, where the only remaining structure is a monument to President Dr. Phil, made out of Eternium. Whereas with the
1: past, at least you know the basic plot points, and there's a vast encyclopedia of calamities you could still fix. If you could go back in time uh, and do anything you want, uh, what, what would it be? I have no idea. Warn people of disasters, I guess. Warn people of disaster? Yeah, like September 11th or something. And how would you go about it, do you think? Oh, no idea. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, no one imagines that they'll end up with an iron collar around their neck, working in a quarry. Instead, they have a starring role in the historical docudrama. Like this guy, who'd set the controls for the Revolutionary War. I don't think I'd be like a general in the field or anything like that, but I'd probably be more of like a like an advisor to Washington, like Alexander Hamilton was, right, and and a few other folks. So, yeah. I love how you're already an officer in this. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. But these ambitious, world-saving time travelers are just a small subset of the people we interviewed.
4: I have a probably much more selfish kind of answer.
7: (laughs) Most of the people we talked to didn't want to change history. They wanted to go back in time to fix something personal, something in their own lives
5: probably wouldn't have
1: asked my ex-wife out that first time. Really? Yeah. And 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 how, how do you think uh, you would be different now in that case? I'd have a hell of a lot more money. There are some people that I wish I could have punched. One of them is deceased.
8: If I could time travel, I'd go back and fix all the awful, awful mistakes I'd done there's so many stuff that you just think of like when you're lying in bed and you're like, oh my god, that's so embarrassing.
7: Wait, hang on a second, though. You're, You're only 11.
8: Yeah. I've got a lot of things I want to change.
7: She told me, number one on the list, the night she told a room full of adults a joke that began, a Canadian, an Italian, and two Chinese people were standing on a roof. More than one person said they wanted to go back in time just to advise
1: their younger selves, knowing what they know now like my friend Jimmy.
5: I think if I, you know, like I would meet myself at whatever coffee shop I used to go to, it was like the Dern Street Deli on the back end of, um, of Beacon Hill. I'd be like, look, come here for a minute. Come here. These are the five things you need to know that's going to help you in like the next 25 years of your life. These are the five things you need to know.
1: And what are those five things?
5: You know, bet on these sports games, never ride this roller coaster, and
6: and sex moves
1: two other things?
5: Oh, that sex moves with three things.
7: And listening to both of these groups, the ones who want to save the world and the ones who'd use the time machine to excel in the boudoir... Or to do anything else in their private lives. You can't help wondering, are the people who want to save the world just better people? We posed this question to everyone we talked to. I mean, do I think they're better people? I think it's just those people
0: are less self-involved. That doesn't make them better or worse.
5: I don't know. I think that that sort of grand delusion that you could ultimately change a big event, a big life-changing event, and that you'd be doing everybody a favor by doing this, is a little, I mean, that's that's pretty crazy. As opposed to like thinking, oh yeah, I can make myself not ride the J-Train that night when that dude threw up
8: on me.
1: When you talk to a large number of people about time travel, you tend to hear a lot about the butterfly effect, that idea that a little change can have massive repercussions as it echoes through history. You've heard of this. But with these small little personal wishes, it almost feels like you can get away with it somehow. It's just you, after all. And maybe one other person.
4: Probably go back in time to before my husband died. Maybe even the the day or two before. Yeah. I wouldn't do anything necessarily different but I might just enjoy that time a bit more than I actually did yeah. Would you say anything differently? Um, no, I don't think so except for the last conversation I might not have made about, about a stupid Tupperware order <laughs> I might make it about something a bit more a bit more about how I felt about him what was the disagreement I have to ask? Um, It was, um, the last conversation was um, he was berating me for not putting the order in, and I said it was difficult to put the order in when the Tupperware catalog's on the dashboard of your truck. He was driving the truck at the time, and he said, no, it's not, no, it's not, and I said, yes, it is, and then he's obviously looked on the dashboard and seen the Tupperware catalogue and gone, oh, you're right, it is on the... It's just stupid, isn't it? The stupid things that we realize afterwards and we remember. But, yeah, probably would have made that last conversation. And we laughed, but I probably would have made that conversation about something else. So, yeah. At least we laughed about it.
1: This phone call happened when he was on his way to play cricket. This was in Australia. At the end of the game, he had a cardiac arrest. Other folks we talked to said they wanted to go back in time and study harder in school, or pick a different career path entirely. One said he wished he had picked a better roommate. Some people just wanted to go back and relive parts of their lives that they enjoyed.
7: A few people said they didn't want to time travel. They already have too much they want to do in the present. And maybe everything would just end up worse if they changed anything anyway. And about that, these people who just didn't want to go back? It turns out there was another finding in the Pew study. Older people, people over 50, are less inclined to want to time travel. And people over 65 are way less inclined to want to time travel. But why? Does one achieve a greater sense of peace in old age? Self-acceptance? Or maybe it comes down to an older person's concerns about the time machine itself. Will it have leg room, Clean bathrooms. Will meals be served? And if so, is there a low-sodium option? Clearly, we needed to talk to some seniors— and so, like Al Pacino in a geriatric version of cruising, we set out at night to a park looking for old people.
1: Here we got these guys here. Oh, which guys? These guys right here. We found this Mutton Jeff-type pair of elderly guys sitting on a bench.
7: We'd make them answer for their elderly brethren and sisterin. Is it true what the survey says? Are they not interested in time travel?
6: No, I've, I've divested myself from all fantasy.
7: The only thing I believe up there is the UFOs. Seems
6: consistent with the research, sort of. Why would I believe in a fantasy like that? Why are you even interviewing me and putting that supposition to me? It's a waste of your time. It's a waste of valuable time well, on the radio. This is all fantasy. You, Why are you even bringing that question you always feel that way? Or the no? world is coming to an end. Why are you wasting my
7: time? I mean, well, no, but don't you like to indulge in... But after in a mere sub- eight and a half minutes fantasy, like, of cross-examination... It turned out these two were just as ready to climb into a time machine as a person half their age. You don't just want to go back in time to, like... The only reason I would want to go back in time is to be young so I could
6: have orgasm. Wait. Have you ever heard of the PTO mo- movement? No. The Peace Through Orgasm movement. I have not heard of that. Well, now you've heard of it.
1: So, wait, you were saying that you would
2: like to go back? Oh, sure I would. I would like to go into the future. Now, let's we'll talk about the UFOs. This is documented in the library in
1: 1947. But but going back to going back to the time travel, do you ever dream about going back in time? Do you wish you could? I don't dream it, but I, I would like to. Maybe see the dinosaurs. You want to see the dinosaurs? Why? Be
2: nice. Well, just to see how they are. I'd have to be equipped with some some sort of a, a laser something. You never know.
7: It was beginning to seem as though, when you scratch the surface, even those opposed to time travel might soften their position and find some reason to go back. Perhaps this is the limitation of a cold by the numbers survey. Scratching surfaces is exactly what Pew cannot do.
1: Thank you very much. It's good oh, to meet you. You, you
2: believe in UFOs, don't you? I yeah. think I do. Yeah. Good. Right. So yeah. Another form of insanity. Yeah, sure, really. You're sure. You. You're probably...
1: So we went looking for senior citizens who truly have zero interest in time travel like the Pew study found so we could ask them why, which is how we ended up at a senior center in Brooklyn.
7: There was maybe a couple dozen people sitting around in the cafeteria after breakfast watching Let's Make a Deal on a big screen TV. The director of the center turned the sound down and told Sean to introduce himself.
1: Hi, <laughs> Sorry to bother you guys. My name's Sean Cole, and I'm a radio producer with... Not
7: so much the radio professional when you're being stared at by a room full of silent seniors who hate you for getting their game show muted. Meanwhile, Johnny just stood there, helping not at all. And because you weren't making any sense at all, the director, Rosemary Bland, had to step in.
9: Okay, so he's just going to be talking to y'all about time travel, whether you... Enjoy time travel or whether you do tra- time travel or whether you don't do time travel. Okay? okay. <laughs>
1: of course, those were not our questions
7: nor anything like them. Nevertheless, we made our way from table to table.
2: Well, I'm not interested in time travel. No, I'm not interested. I think going backwards is not helping us. When I was younger, but not now. If it's going to cost them money... That's another no-no. <laughs> you got to remember you got retirees, you
9: know?
1: <laughs> People that have Alzheimer's, they go back in time. People that have Alzheimer's?
9: Yeah, they go back in time. We don't have that yet. Going up there to the moon, you know, exploring, they're probably already up there, you know, with time travel. Fun
7: fact. When talking with seniors about time travel, they sometimes throw the question into a big science fiction food processor with space travel. But the Pew finding did bear out. Most people at the senior center were pretty dismissive of the idea. Some, more emphatically than others.
1: I no. know. <laughs> Why not? Why? This is Wallace Nottage, a stately 86-year-old, it was his birthday actually, with a cane and he was wearing a colorful fez on his head. We were called over to talk to him by two women who said, he'd probably have a lot to say to you. And he did. We sat with him for about 20 minutes, until finally, he gave us what felt like the most plausible reason why old people wouldn't want to go back in time.
6: It's not so much that you're at peace with the way things are. is that uh, you've come to the realization that ain't much going to change.
7: Maybe the thing that much older people understand isn't that time travel is frivolous. It's that it's pointless. When you have half a century of past behind you, or more, and you look at those decades in one swath, you realize that even if you fix one thing, something else will go wrong. Even some of the younger people we talked with felt
1: that way about changing the past.
8: I mean, I'd love to do it, and I'm sure everyone would love to go back in time and change some things, Mm -hmm. but it ruined things a bit, too.
7: How How do you mean?
8: Well, experiences, like... Experiences that people might not call experiences. People might call mistakes. They... They make you even though at at that time they make you sad, if you go if you go back and change everything like that, then you don't learn, so you're sad more often.
7: Yeah. So you're saying there's no there's no there's no getting around it?
8: No. There really isn't.
1: Inevitably, in between things, when Johnny and I were interviewing folks together, we got to talking about whether either of us would want to go back in time for any reason. In Johnny's case, the answer would be... No. Too adventurous. Not for me. Whereas I'm one of those people who's thought about this a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. There was this point when I obsessively wanted to go back in time to a very particular moment in time to fix the past. The facts are pretty standard. I was with a woman, and we needed to decide about our future. So I flew to Alaska for the weekend to visit her. And after talking for two days, I finally said that I wasn't ready to be with her. And for a long time after that, I wished I had made the opposite decision, that I had told her yes instead of no. I would sit and pray that I could have that weekend to do over again. I'd picture it all the time. And then... Just little by little, there wasn't any big epiphany or anything. I came to see that things were never really right between us, and that they never would have been. It took about two years, maybe longer, to understand that. And now she's married, and I'm not, but I'm really happy we're not together. And it makes me realize that I have been time traveling. It's just that I've been traveling into the future, at 60 minutes per hour. And maybe that's how we fix the past.
0: Sean Cole is one of the producers of our show. Jonathan Goldstein is the host of the podcast Heavyweight, which you can listen to for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, a glass of wine that could change everything. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, The Leap, stories of people taking a huge jump into the unknown. We've arrived at Act 3 of our program, Act 3, the wisdom to know the difference. So Nancy Updeck has this story that we first ran when we first broadcast today's program back in 2014 about somebody considering a very big leap in her own life.
9: Tina Dupuy has a story she's told dozens of times in front of thousands of people. It's about herself at 13 years old, when she was being told by people around her, you have a problem. The problem landed her in AA and started early. She remembers drinking sake when she was five years old at a family reunion. At age 12, pouring herself a big glass of tequila at three in the morning to drink by herself and watch TV. The kinds of things that can seem cool or no big deal when you're in it until suddenly they're ruining your life. At a very young age, Tina became what she calls AA famous for telling her story at meetings and AA conferences like this one.
3: I got sober when I was 13, and for a really long time, I thought that was my part. That was my identity, and that was my thing that was going to make me different from absolutely everybody. Um, Even in young people's meetings, I was like, you know, oh, yeah, you're 16, whatever. (laughs) I got sober
9: when I was 13, you know. Um, And last year at ACIPA, ACIPA. stands for All California Young People in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh,
3: I was in the room I was staying in and there was this kid there and uh, and he looked really young and I was like, wow, how, how old are you? And uh, he said he's 13. I was like, wow, how long do you have sober? And he says he has 90 days. And I was like, wow, you know, I, I got sober when I was 13. You know, I'm cool. And he's like, I got sober when I was 12.
9: So Tina got AA like, no, famous no, as no, Tina D, no, the girl name. who got sober when she was 13 and could tell the hell out of her story. And if you're wondering, yes, teenagers can be alcoholics. Almost 700,000 teenage alcoholics in the U.S., according to the most recent government statistics. AA saved Tina's life by the grace of God or whatever higher power you choose. She quoted the Big Book, that's the official AA book, so much that people in AA called her Big Book Thumper. It's like a Bible thumper, except with the Big Book. And any teenager who shows up at AA today could be handed a Young People in A.A. pamphlet that starts with Tina's story. That's part one of this, Tina from age 13 up to 33, two decades sober. At 33, she'd been married for several years. She'd become a columnist and a political commentator, a long way from the miserable, angry girl she'd been, who dropped out of school and spent her time drinking and smoking pot with the older kids, running away from home. A.A. and sobriety felt so thoroughly part of her by her 30s that she only went to meetings once a month or so to listen and to tell people who were struggling the things other people had told her. Keep coming back. Trust your higher power. Everything happens for a reason. After so much turbulence, her life was finally calm. And then an unwelcome and not at all expected thought. One day it occurred to me that
3: everything doesn't happen for a reason. What it is is that Everything happens, and then we assign a reason to it.
9: For someone else, maybe it wouldn't be a big deal. For Tina, this was the start of a great, slow unraveling. Next to go was belief in a higher power. And then she became fixated on a dangerous question.
3: I, you know, I kept, I would, I would wonder, you know, what if? What if I drank? Really, what would happen? But I, I mean, in the Alcoholics Anonymous book. It says, if you don't think you're an alcoholic, go drink. And if you can drink normally, awesome. I'm paraphrasing. But it says that. It says, you know, this is how you can find out if you're an alcoholic. Go drink.
9: Let's take a minute and consider the scale of what Tina was proposing. Tina had been a full-blown drunk at 13 years old. She found AA, and in every AA meeting, the first thing you say out loud to get started is, I'm an alcoholic. Tina had been saying that her entire adult life, and all of her adolescence. Asking herself, should I take a drink, was basically asking, should I turn my back on what I believed about myself for 20 years? There's only one reason to entertain a question that immense, which is, you can't help it. Tina had doubted and questioned her way into a process that she could not stop. It was like she'd started restoring a painting, and then realized, I think there's another painting underneath. I want to say one thing, which is that when I interviewed Tina, I saw that a lot of what she's talking about, her rethinking of her story, she's still in the middle of figuring it out right now, today. Tina has a few key anecdotes she's told over the years at AA conferences. I've heard a bunch of recordings of her speaking. One story is about a moment when she was 12 with her mom laying down the law. Here's the recording. You know, she said, uh,
3: I need, you know, I need you in before 6 a.m., So when I go to work, I can know that you're okay. And I was like, look, lady, I don't need to deal with your rules. I'm out of here.
9: Notice in this anecdote, Tina is the problem. That's how it is in all the recordings. She's rude to her mom. She's self-destructive. It's a classic AA story about admitting bad behavior, taking responsibility for it. Anything else is just excuses. But the questions Tina was having had stirred up the anything else and made her go back and look at things she hadn't looked at since she was a kid, especially her relationship with her mom.
3: This is so awkward for me to talk about because I've spent, and I'm, I've spent the last 25 years convincing myself that it had nothing to do with that my mommy didn't hug me enough, you know? I don't want anyone to think that, like, you know, I'm blaming my mommy I just And I also don't want to feel like I'm ripping on her. Like, Does that make sense?
9: Yeah, it does. A central tenet of AA is taking responsibility, not going on and on about how other people are always the problem. So let me lay out some things. Tina's parents had been part of a new religious movement, which is the current term for what most of us would still call a cult. They moved around a lot when Tina was little, four different countries before she was three years old. Then her parents left the cult, and her dad was almost entirely out of the picture after that. Home was a constant battle of wills between Tina and her mother, and she was a defiant kid. She talked back, she swore, she cut school, she'd harass her younger brother. The way her mom responded to the bad behavior, as Tina remembers it, was to tell her she was evil. She was rotten. And when Tina was 11, 11, her mother had her committed to a hospital under psychiatric care. Sort of a kiddie mental ward. Locked up. A tough love intervention to curb her rebelliousness.
3: I kind of knew that she was trying to scare the crap out of me. Because then I would do what she said. And I knew, like, I remember being in that elevator and just thinking, she wants me to cry, she wants me to beg, she wants me to bargain, she wants me to apologize, and she wants me to say... You know, I will do whatever you say. I'm so sorry. Just don't leave me here. And I remember thinking, like, if I show her that, if I do that, then she wins. And so I, it was basically like I was calling her bluff. Not to cry. Not to cry, but also to go like, okay, see you later. Yeah. Whatever. Not to cry, not to beg. Yeah, not to like, mm-hmm. you know, this is like, you don't scare me. Nothing you can do can hurt me. And when I got to AA and people said that they felt dead inside, I felt dead inside. And... I just didn't want her to win.
9: When you're 11, your parents are the casino. The house pretty much always wins. Your only move as a child is to screw up your own life and hope that it messes with theirs, too. Tina was in the hospital for 30 days. It did not make her less defiant. Two years later, her parents decided on a long-term solution to the problem of Tina, which was to make her a ward of the state when she was 13. They put her into the foster care system. She was sent to a girl's group home, and that's where she stayed until she graduated from high school. The head of the group home corroborated Tina's memory that her parents rarely visited her there. I talked to Tina's mom. She didn't remember calling Tina evil, but she did remember the fighting, and she remembered committing Tina for 30 days to the hospital. She said she was trying to raise two kids on her own and went to a family therapist who gave her the book Tough Love and recommended hospitalizing Tina. Foster care, the group home, is where Tina regularly started going to AA. So one pattern in Tina's AA stories is she's the bad guy, the only bad guy, even though she was a kid. But I noticed another pattern when I was listening through her old recordings of her speeches, which is she never gets drunk in the stories. Here's one of the recordings. Tina's talking about when she went to San Francisco to try and live with her father briefly.
3: I get on the plane and I, I sit next, it's a crowded flight, and I sit next to this poor guy and I start telling him my, everything about myself, and my entire life story, which wasn't that long, about 15 minutes. I was 13. And so I just keep on telling him my entire life story about, you know, how I'm gonna, you know, get back in school and I'm, you know, I'm not gonna, you know, whatever. And, then the, you know, the flight attendant comes by about 15 minutes into the flight with the beverage cart. And I, so I nudged this guy and I'm like, hey, you know, uh, can you buy me some, some jack? And he's, he looks me straight in the eye and he says, if you're going to change your life, why don't you start now?
9: And I was like, the audacity <laughs> for this guy to tell me what to do with my life. The way she told it in AA, this was yet another example of what an extreme case she was. A 13-year-old who's such a booze hound that she's bugging the guy next to her on a plane to buy her a drink. But notice, she asks for a glass of Jack Daniels, but she doesn't get it. She doesn't drink any Jack Daniels. This is actually one of the reasons Tina was a popular AA speaker. People would come up to her afterwards sometimes and say thank you for not just getting up and telling a bunch of boring drinking stories. Here's another recording. Remember the glass of tequila? I poured
3: myself a big tumbler of tequila. I was drinking by myself, 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, I was watching Sarah T, Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic, uh, Linda Blair,
9: and Mark Hamill. The glass of tequila makes a big entrance, and then nothing happens with it. The rest of the story is about the TV show she was watching. When I asked Tina about the tequila, she told me, right, when she really thought back on it, she could only remember taking a few sips, and that was it. It was only when Tina started having the blasphemous thought in her head, should I take a drink, that she also began to seriously question how much she had drunk as a kid. Really, what was true. For instance, that AA pamphlet with Tina's story in it. When Tina read it out loud during our interview, it was the first time she'd looked at the words she'd written in about 10 years. Have you read this? I haven't read it. (sighs) Okay.
3: I love how alcohol affected me. It numbed all the torment in my brain. I had new friends, the older kids. I was cool, finally. Very quickly, though, I started getting into trouble. When I was 11, I was put into what I assumed was a mental hospital. I was relieved to find out that I was crazy. Crazy is cool. I realized much later that the place was a rehab. (sighs) When I read it, I see where I was mistaken.
9: What was mistaken was, first of all, the place was not a rehab for alcohol or drug abuse. It was psychiatric hospitalization to fix Tina's attitude. And second, she didn't remember loving how alcohol affected her. She didn't remember it numbing the torment in her brain. Maybe she was in denial, or had forgotten, since it was so long ago, how alcohol made her feel. Which is why she now wanted to take a drink. She felt like she had to take a drink. This would be a referendum on her story. Was she an alcoholic or not? And if she wasn't an alcoholic, then what was true from the stories she'd been telling on stage all these years? She had to know. So she and her husband talked through when and how she would take her first drink.
3: Like, what happens if I, you know, if I get, you know, drunk and everything falls apart and, you know, and it's horrible and whatever. And I am an alcoholic. And he was like, OK, we'll figure it out then. OK, then, you know, then we'll deal with it. And I was like, well, you know, and what what if I'm not? he's like, OK, then that's great. <laughs> and that was basically we had that exact same conversation. I'm embarrassed to report for about... Nine months, probably every night.
9: Good for him. I
3: know, right? The most. This is why. <laughs> <laughs>
9: like, sounds like a stand-up guy.
3: Yeah, right. He was like, "It's okay," and you know, and we. He's like, "You don't have to
9: do it. You don't have to drink, or if you want to, great." I mean, I feel like you know one of the indicators of not being an alcoholic is having kind of a casual take-it-or-leave-it relationship. Thank you. So, See, that's why I was an alcoholic. Because <laughs> it was the mental obsession. <laughs> right, right. So the fact that that you're that you're obsessively talking about, shouldn't I, should I, should I, I mean, did that, is that the reason that you were having the conversation over and over again? Because yeah. every time and then you I had was the conversation, like... that would reinforce the idea that you were an alcoholic because here you are bringing it up again. And if you were not an alcoholic, you wouldn't need to be having this conversation as many times as you were absolutely wow
3: right so and the, and then the only way to get out of that is to really like let's let's do this we go to a wine store on the way home we pay for it we go home my husband makes a pasta dish with chicken he lights two candles pours two glasses of wine and so i take a little sip and and i say it tastes like the 70s <laughs>
8: meaning meaning mean,
3: i had tasted white wine before but i was like 5 you know i was young and it but i remembered that taste that taste immediately came back to me and it and then i tried to eat my meal and and it was you know I didn't enjoy the taste it was kind of like it it was really acidic
9: Mm -hmm. and were you waiting
3: oh yeah to oh yeah so I was like like when am I gonna want to like go and do shots Mm -hmm. at the corner bar like right I mean just who knows and I went to sleep you know had a glass of wine and it was completely uneventful
9: I mean, you, I just want to make sure I'm understanding. You are saying you don't think you're an alcoholic.
3: I'm not an alcoholic, not by any measure.
9: And now you drink?
3: Now I drink, um, it's, I'm new at this, right? So I've been drinking for, I've been drinking about seven months now.
9: Mm -hmm.
3: And I don't drink, if I drink more than two, I go to sleep.
9: It hasn't changed anything else in your life?
3: Not at all. I've had no personality change, I've had none of... I, I. When I start to feel the effects of alcohol, I stop drinking. Now that I actually know what alcoholism is and what normal drinking is, more importantly what I know what normal drinking is, I'm average. Which is probably the most jarring thing that has happened. That after all of this, I'm incredibly average when it comes to my alcohol consumption. Have you have you told
9: everyone you kind of
3: care about? I've told a very select group of people that I'm drinking. Because one, I'm afraid that people who I have helped over the years in AA will be affected. And they will, um, it'll make them question their alcoholism. And maybe if they drink again, then I'll feel responsible. Or they'll feel like I would and i there's also the aspect of that i was lying you know i mean i was lying i was lying to myself but i was i was lying and so that it, it, i am embarrassed it seems and i am like i took this took a long time to it's it's like this is it's embarrassing that i didn't have this kind of self awareness
9: The postscript to drinking for Tina has been getting straight in her mind why she thought she was an alcoholic in the first place. How does a non-alcoholic child come to believe that she's a stone drunk? Well, here's how she puts it together now. She went to the first AA meeting, just because nothing else to do. This was in the place she was being held before going to the group home at 13. And one of the AA phrases that caught Tina's ear was, relate to the feelings, because boy, did she relate. In AA, she heard other people talk one after another about things that were so familiar to her, feeling rejected by their families, winding up in hospital or rehab, feeling trapped and furious and desperate. People said to her, I used to be exactly where you are now. And they had all done what she had done. They had lashed out. They had acted badly.
3: There was no other way of explaining at the time, and it wasn't until, I mean, this is very recently, There was no way for me to figure out why I kept on getting locked up, why I kept on having, you know, being sent away, um, why my, my mother was fuming at me.
9: If Tina was an alcoholic, everything made sense. She was the problem. She was the only problem. And if she stuck with the program, she could fix the problem. AA gave Tina a whole life, goals, discipline, a belief system, people to call when things were bad. People to call when things were good. She graduated from high school at 17, emancipated herself from foster care, started her adult life.
3: It's, it's really liberating to find your people, to find people who you relate to, to find people to ask you to come back. And that was what I experienced. You know, I didn't have people asking me to come back. And they said at every meeting, keep coming back. And I was like, okay. I became a contributing member of society. I mean, that's, what, that, that's a phrase that they use, but I, I stopped feeling sorry for myself. I looked at other people whose lives were much more difficult for whatever reason, and I, was, I stopped feeling sorry for the lot I was given and being able to feel true happiness, just feeling like I was okay and there was no crisis. That was what I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, and that's the, I mean, it's almost, that is the irony, right? I'm not an alcoholic, but my life was saved by AA.
9: I asked Dina if any of her friends are worried about her now that she's drinking. She said, no, not anymore. But she said sometimes she still has a little voice in her head saying, yeah, you're fine now. What if there's some threshold you just haven't crossed, and when you do, you turn into the full blown drunk you always thought you were? But the voice has zero evidence for that scenario. It's just trying to keep the story going.
0: Nancy Upkike. We first ran this story back in twenty fourteen. Since then Tina has not returned to AA. She says her drinking today is still boring and uneventful. we program is was produced today by Stephanie Fu and myself with Ben Calhoun, Sean Cole, Hannah Jaffe, Walt, Sarah Koenig, Miki, Meek, Jonathan, and Brian Reed, Ramasemi, Melissa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Senior producer for today's show is Julie Snyder. Production help from J.P. Dukes, Beth Lake, Catherine Raimondo, Stone Nelson, Ari Saperstein, and Matt Tierney. Elena Baker scouted stories for today's program. Research help today from Chris Rosatala and Michelle Harris. Editing help today from Joel Lovell. Music help today from Damian Grafe. Special thanks to Lisa Jarvis, D.W. Box, Gregor Ehrlich, Pat Clark, Ed Hacker, Starley Kind, Robert Krowich, and all the people that Jonathan and Sean talked to for the time travel story. Thanks especially to the Raices Times Plaza Neighborhood Senior Center for letting us record there. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks as always to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia, you know, the other day. I walked into his office and caught him licking, licking an old vinyl copy of Peter Frampton's Frampton Comes Alive. I was like, Tori, what are you doing? It tastes like the 70s. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Next week on the podcast of This American Life. Kara was pretty green when she decided at 17 that she wanted to be a stripper. And yeah, the club hired her without checking her ID. Before her first shift, she went dress shopping.
4: It was a, a purple dress. I got it from Macy's. Was it like floor length? Yeah, it was flowing, but it you know came like right over my knees. It was a halter top. And I'm just looking and I see all these girls in and they're in like fishnets nice and clear heels
0: sex workers, and laws that are supposed to protect them but don't, next week on the podcast or on your local public
9: radio station.